Go ahead and call me a coward, say that I'm not strong because I'm not like you. Go ahead and call me crazy because I live in a maze, tell me how about you? I think I live in my head, sometimes I think that I'm dead, I hide behind my youth. Hi everyone. No, I've been losing my mind and I'm a little bit. Thank you and welcome for joining me at another episode of Thoughts and Tea, TMT with your girl, T. <clears throat> I couldn't be this far in this program without you, and for that, I am very grateful. So, thank you for your time. Press is fuck, stress is fuck. Ain't no medicine that can cure us intense drugs. I need, I need extra. All right, so let's start with some breaking news. And where the fuck is God? Apparently, Madagascar came up with a tonic to help combat COVID 19, but guess what? the western world is fighting it <sighs> when will they get with the program the black people brown people africans we've been doing it we've been doing this since the beginning of time so they might as well get to by themselves and let africa help anyway i know you may be wondering why i have such dark choice of music for this episode but that's because Today's episode is dark. Today's episode is very, very heavy. Pen running out. Today's episode is about one thing we don't like to talk about, but something that is very, very important. Something that happens in our communities. Something with a very big stigma. And with me today is Dr. Kamisha Spates as we talk about suicide, particularly suicide in black communities. Join and Lucas captures the essence of suicide in the song playing in the background. And I'd like you all to listen to it, if you can, after the show. But without saying too much, thank you, Dr. Kamisha Spates. And let's get right into the meat. So everyone, as I told you with me, I have the amazing Dr. Kamisha Spates of Kent State University, but I'll have her introduce herself to you so she can tell us who she is and what she does. Yes. Uh, so thank you, Yara, for having me. Thank you for taking the time to uh, shine light on this important topic. I'm honored to be here and uh, and I look forward to our conversation today. Um, so I'm Dr. Kamisha Spates, uh, as was mentioned, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Sociology. Uh, I am, uh, I've been studying a combination of suicide and mental health, particularly in the Black community. Uh, for at least 10 years now. And, um, and I, I um, am definitely uh, honored to be doing this work. And I think in light of the 
current pandemic. Uh, couldn't be a better time to talk about some of this sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, so that's what I what I study. And I look at things from a uh, social inequalities, social structural um, perspective, where I really look at the ways in which the society we live in as Black folks impacts our mental health, um, our expressions of suicide, as well as um, what things look like after we've lost someone to to suicide. All right. Wonderful. Um, so let's just get right to the meat. Um, the first question I have for you is, I think most of us know what suicide is, but from your professional standpoint, how would you define suicide? Right. So um, that's a very, uh, I'll give you the short answer. And the, the short answer is not, you know, there depends on who you're talking to and what country you're talking to. And in one context, you're, in what context you're talking about suicide in, that can vary um, per, per setting, right? Um, but I will speak about this from uh, what we know it to mean in the United States. And so we, most social scientists define suicide as death caused by self-directed injuries or behavior with the intent, and that key word is with the intent to die as a result of their behavior. So most of us that study this, um, particularly those of us that study this in the U.S., um, that's how we look at suicide, particularly the cases in which the injury was self-directed and in other cases where the intent of the individual was to, in fact, uh, take their life. All right. So the second question is, and you actually mentioned it a little briefly with um, you being part of the group of people who study mental health. I wanted you to shine some light. Does suicide fall into any category? You know, when we talk about mental health, people automatically assume um, anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, and stuff like that. Does suicide fall into that range or does suicide fall into anything mental health related? I would say, I, I think um, it's important to keep the conversation somewhat separate because what can happen if we think about suicide only in connection with um, a diagnosed, a diagnostical uh, mental illness, I think sometimes we can miss expressions of suicide. Um, and what I mean by that is there may be cases, and, and a lot of times we do find that depression um, goes hand in hand with uh, individuals that have attempted suicide or committed suicide. Uh, we also find that there is a connection between, um, you know, for, particularly for males, uh, substance abuse and alcohol abuse, all of which, right, so, so are, are um, all of those are uh, diagnostic or diagnosable mental illnesses. But I see the point and I see the importance of keeping them separate because suicide and expressions of suicide and what it looks like for each person can certainly vary. So, <clears throat> so you know, we may see cases where the person did not ha had not been diagnosed with depression or they were not necessarily um, struggling with alcohol or drug abuse. So, um, so, so suicide in and of itself does not fall under a particular category, but we do tend to see certain things that can go along with um, an individual that is uh, suicidal. Okay. And so now what are some of the risk factors that could make a, pets, a person susceptible to committing suicide? And I know you just talked about, you know, that correlation between something like depression and people committing suicide, but it's not, 
it's not that black and white. It doesn't mean that the fact that someone is depressed, they're going to commit suicide. So what are some of the risk factors that could make someone susceptible to committing suicide? So I, so again, um, and, and I, I just, I like to always preface my conversations with this, um, suicide and suicide behaviors, suicide beliefs, those sorts of things vary widely across cultures and ethnicities. So I, I think it would be important for me to give you some specific, um, uh, uh, um, risk factors that are affecting, uh, blacks in the United States and what we see, what we see and what those trends are. Um, and so with that in mind, um, the, the risk factors or the factors that appear to be more common, um, than others in this particular population would be those that are lacking, uh, adequate social support systems. So these might be folks that, uh, are currently incarcerated. These could be folks that, um, don't necessarily have the best relationship with their family or their friends. Um, the research is very clear on the benefits of having a strong social support network or social support system. And so we do, we do know that when we're talking about um, Africans, African-Americans and Blacks in America, um, having an adequate social support system or in having an inadequate social support system appears to be a risk factor. Also, um, those that have been victims of childhood sexual abuse, and that's particularly for Black women, um, we see that to be an ongoing uh, risk factor for suicidal behavior. Um, also, another big one is um, folks from LGBTQ communities. Um, we, we tend to see, um, when we're looking at Blacks in the United States, those that are occupying marginalized groups, right? They're a member of a marginalized group racially, religiously, um, sexual orientation, and those sorts of things um, really do appear to increase um, risk factors for this particular group. And then another one is um, the perception that an individual is dealing with racism, homophobia, or discrimination, Right. Those are all the sorts of things that appear to um, make a person more susceptible to the act of, of suicide or those t- those types of behavior. And so folks that are, you know, encountering uh, discrimination in the workplace, um, individuals that um, are encountering any sort of um, discrimination in, in any other aspect of their life. Uh, that's uh, that's another big one. And then also we notice that uh, marital status, that, that appears to be uh, an ongoing uh, risk factor that we take a look at when an individual is uh, a suicidal, um, particularly those that are widowed or recently divorced. Um, those appear to be some of the um, some of the factors. So so a combination of you know looking at the person's support system, um, looking at whether they've had experience as a child with sexual abuse um, or any sort of abuse, um, perceived notions or perceived ideas of dealing with racism, homophobia, and discrimination, as well as one's marital status. And and more recently, we're also starting to see the word poverty being put into the conversation um, as when it comes to um, um, folks of color and people from marginalized backgrounds um, that, you know, when you combine those sorts of things, um, those are those are certainly risk factors that researchers are well aware of when it comes to folks that uh, may be suicidal. 
Okay, cool. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of groups of people. It is. From your expertise um, within our black community, who are some of the most vulnerable? And I, I'm sure you've answered some of that with the very uh, the question you just answered. However, just to make it very clear, who are some of the most vulnerable populations within the black communities who are most susceptible to commit suicide? I'm glad you asked that question, uh, especially because I want to make clear, even though we are talking about the black community, right? Mm-hmm. We are a very diverse group of people. Okay. So we're diverse with regards to our ethnic backgrounds. We're diverse in terms of age. We're diverse in terms of how we see the world. We're diverse in terms of gender dynamics. Right. And so I am talking about blacks as a community, but I am also, um, I also see the value in me taking a step back and saying, okay, um, there's a lot of diversity within the black community. And so when we're talking about suicide, um, there are a few groups that appear to be most at risk now, most vulnerable. So when we see the numbers lay out and we kind of dissect those numbers by some of those different identities that I just mentioned, we do tend to see some trends. And the one that I want to talk about first is um, Black teenage girls between the ages of 13 and 17. Okay. And so what we're seeing and what we have seen over the last decade or so, actually, is there appears to be a, a, a high a higher rate of suicidal ideations among this particular group. And now I'll define suicidal ideation, right? That is essentially the thought of engaging in suicidal suicide related behavior. So in other words, we're talking about a group that, um, seriously thinks about harming themselves. Okay. Cause everybody, I, I think at a human level, everybody has had the thought, okay, I just, enough is enough. I'm, I, I can't take it anymore, but I'm talking about it at a different level from that. And so those thoughts of engaging, thinking of a plan on how to do it, thinking of, you know, what, what might my life be like if I was no longer here, those sorts of things. And so suicide um, among black teenage girls between the ages of 13 and 17 is a group that researchers, are well aware of, as well as Black middle-aged males. And so now we're talking between the ages of 25 and 34. That's also another group that has, I guess if we want to call it that, been deemed as vulnerable um, in a group to, you know, just stay mindful of those tend to be, the majority of the suicides tend to be in these particular groups. Also, we see um, a a very disheartening trend, um, and this is among Black children between the ages 5 and 11 years old. Um, we have, uh, collected, I have been collecting some cases, um, anytime I come across them, uh, that outlines in the media, uh, any case of a child between the ages of five and 11 that has taken their life. And we're talking black children. And so, um, for the first time in history, I think uh, a, re- a couple of researchers, Jeffrey Bridges and his colleagues, identified in 2015 that um, black children between those ages of five and 11 now uh, suicide suicides outnumber white children uh, in that same age range of five to 11 for the first time in history. So that's another vulnerable group that we're aware of and that we're looking into to see a bit more about what's happening. Also, um, individuals that are uh, in those transitional periods tend to be more vulnerable. So we're talking college students, and I know you can 
speak personally to how difficult and how that transition might be a bit complicated when you're transitioning to becoming a college student. It is no joke, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so we see uh, among Black college students, there tends to be uh, those transitional periods that uh, that that um, that are you know that researchers are highlighting as a group that may be more vulnerable. Um, and so, so yeah, so that those are the groups that have kind of gotten the attention of researchers. But again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen outside of these groups. Um, and so, um, one last group I think that's that is worth mentioning. Um, not a lot of research on it, but it's just now starting to hit the radar, are black clergy men and women, right? So we're talking pastors of churches and uh, male and female, right? We're starting to see that uh, suicide rates among clergy men and women, um, black clergy men and women are, are, um, have, are significantly outnumbering their white counterparts. So I know that's a lot, but when we're talking about vulnerability, I want to make sure I highlight some groups that are, that are, um, that fit that category. Oh, and I'm happy you did because I've actually just bolded and highlighted the last two um, groups of people you mentioned. We'll come back to it at the end. I just don't want us to divert from getting through right. everything, but yes. Yep. Okay. So then the next question is how is an individual able to notice that they might be suicidal? Because um, with popular television and everything, it seems like, suicide almost became fantasized especially when the 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 movie um or the the tv series what's this thing 15 reasons the 15 uh, yeah you know there was a big uproar about it with regards to fantasizing um or almost making suicide look like this thing and i think some people look at it and like oh my god suicide is this thing like they don't really take so they don't they don't consider it as a really heavy thing. So how can an individual notice that they're actually suicidal and they're not just living that fantasy of oh I watch fifteen reasons why? Well, I think that's a good question. And um, one thing I want to just preface my comment on by saying that sometimes um, suicide can play out very differently uh, in different folks. So there's there's you know what we call expressions of suicide. In other words, what does it look like on the outside? Um, to the folks around the individual. But if you're asking about the individual themselves, I would say um, paying attention to, uh, to your, um, your uh, what do you want to call those, kind of those um, basic health uh, components of your life. How are you sleeping? How are you eating? And how are you communicating with others, right? So if you're sleeping too little or too much, um, that may be something that you want to pay attention to in terms of a sign for that the individual will want to pay attention to. Um, again, with eating, if you're starting to eat and your behaviors are changing, right? Eating too much or too little. So these would be cases in which you've noticed all of a sudden you have absolutely no appetite or all of a sudden you can't do anything but eat. Right. So I'm looking I'm talking about the extremes on both sides of this. Um, and, and so eating and sleeping and how you're communicating with others, you know, are you now very feel, feeling very withdrawn, uh, feeling very isolated? Um, 
and that's not typically your normal. So, so the key is number one, to have an understanding of what your normal is, you know, um, are you someone who's a very social person? And then all of a sudden you have withdrawn. Um, are you someone who sleeps, uh, you only need four or five hours to get through your day and all of a sudden you're up to 12 to 15. Um, and so, uh, just paying attention to that and then paying attention to, to your mood, you know, how are you feeling on a regular basis? You know, you don't have to be a clinician to diagnose yourself, um, to know whether or not you're having extreme mood swings or whether you're, you know, uh, down more often than you're up or whether you're starting to feel hopelessness. Um, and so some of those things really, um, require you to, to, to kind of have a, a bar or a meter or, uh, have a sense for where you normally are and how they are changing. Okay. So now for those of us who are not the individual, so the third party, um, let's say someone is, 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 uh, doesn't know, like something is going on with someone, you know, how can we as third parties identify that the people around us, someone we love particularly might be suicidal? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so I want to say this, the vast majority of suicides are preventable. The vast majority, 90 plus percent of suicides are preventable. And, and when we think about, um, how someone that, you know, a third party can, can help or identify those signs, more often than not, that's the people on the front line are the people we're around every day. Okay. So it's not our doctors. It's not our nurses. It's not our, our clinician or our therapist or our social worker. It's the people that you live with or that you see your family, your loved ones. So we actually have a very, um, a very, uh, um, uh, unique uh, standpoint or vantage point so that when we see something that's happening, uh, we're more likely to see it in comparison to, to a total stranger or someone who doesn't know the individual, right? Somebody that they interact with every day. So what a third party um, might want to look out for is, again, has this person all of a sudden started withdrawing socially? Um, I've done some research where I've even looked at kind of how suicide or expressions of suicide or conversations around suicide can play out, even in online environments. And we looked at Twitter data. And one of the things that um, the research shows is, you know, people don't just withdraw physically from their life, right? They withdraw virtually as well. So that means they may not be as active on their social media page as they once were. Um, and so that's something that folks, you know, third party individuals or folks outside of that person, um, outside of their household might even notice. So also, um, if you've noticed that the individual is starting to talk more about wanting to die or wanting to kill themselves, that is another kind of early warning sign that you could talk about or that, that you might pick up on. Talking about being a burden to others. We tend to see that as an early warning sign. Um, showing, uh, again, displaying those extreme mood swings that not only can the individual notice that, but people close to them may also notice something's going on with that. Uh, showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. Um, some people, um, and, and this is in some cases, so I want to I clarify that. In some cases, people will actually talk about a plan right? I had a student that uh, I uh, mentored at the time that literally uh, had a plan in 
place and kind of gave me a little bit of information, a little bit of insight. And I immediately noted, okay, wait a minute. Not only are they thinking about it, but they actually have thought as much into this to say, you know, exactly how they might do it if they do it, right? So um, some of those early warning signs are really just picking up on the individual um, and, and some of the things that they're doing and saying, and then some of the ways that they're behaving, you know, talking about feeling hopeless or having no purpose, things of that nature. Hmm. Okay, so just to piggyback a little bit off of that. So I know that sometimes when people say things like this, it means we have to be careful. But then again, today are those people who just have really dark humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's like, when, when, when do you notice, okay, this is really dark humor versus, okay, I really need to be looking out for this person. Sure. People are just really good at, with their humor. Yes, that's a great point. And, and actually, that really affirms what my research findings show when we looked at Twitter data. People use those words all the time and, and sometimes in very joking fashions. And in other times, they, it was just like a figure of speech. Like, oh, if I look, and, and we saw this in the Twitter data, you know, people will say things like, oh, if I, if I, um, if I have to take one more test, I'm going to kill myself. Right. And so we're like, okay, please don't use those words. But we do have to realize that we're living in a day and age where people do say those things. And they, you know, like you're saying, this dark humor where they're talking about it in a way where you just don't know where to place the information. And that's fair. But here's my thing. I always believe that you err on the side of caution. Um, now this is going to vary. If you're, if this is somebody, you know, very well, and you've known them for a while and you know that that's always been a part of their personality, um, then you may not take it as seriously as you would, you know, someone you're getting to know. And so I would say, um, I always err on the side of caution and I will literally say, listen, this is not something to joke about. Are you thinking of harming yourself? And then people will start to say, oh, well, no, I didn't mean that, you know, and then you say, okay, well, keep in mind that in this day and age, there's a lot happening. And so I have to take everything in relation to that very seriously. And so hopefully they'll stop the the dark humor. Um, But nonetheless, um, you definitely um, pay attention to their actions as well. You know, sometimes we, we, people may say things and they use words loosely and they don't necessarily mean it, but pay attention to some of those other things that I mentioned, you know, are they, are they withdrawing? Are they, are their sleep patterns changed? Have they started dressing differently? Are they starting to give away things that they generally value? Has anybody, you know, has there been any drug or alcohol use? Pay attention, not just to what they're saying, but also to their actions. Okay. All right. Sweet. (laughs) So then the next thing with regards to suicide within the black community, as let's say that actually this has happened. So someone you loved, um, killed themselves, they committed suicide. What -hmm. can we do as black people when we lose a loved one to suicide? So I I actually want to introduce a term that I I really encourage um, folks to use uh, when this applies to them. And we actually call those people suicide survivors. And I think just to be able to sit in that for a moment, that you are a suicide survivor, as opposed to, you know, I don't really know where I fit into this. I have, I lost my, you know, family member to suicide and I don't know what, you know, where I go next. When you realize that, 
there is a term for what you're going through, you also realize you begin to realize that there are resources to help you. So a quick Google, a quick Google search of the term resources for suicide survivors um, will yield a number of resources. Um, and I know we'll talk about resources later, but just the fact that you um, can, you know, and understand and can in fact label the person who's lost someone to suicide as a suicide provide, survivor um, will then open up other doors uh, and other resources that you can look into. And I think your question is such a great one because approximately, there was a research study done in 2019 by Cyril, approximately 135 people are affected every time a person dies by suicide. So when we think about one death, and we think about how that closely impacts 135 people, at least we realize that we are dealing with um, something, we're really dealing with a widespread issue here. And so in the black community, if you have one death, you got to think about, okay, so how are these 135 other suicide provider or, or survivors um, going to um need support and what might that support look like? So what do you do when you lose a loved one to suicide? Um, I would say um, definitely um, utilizing those resources for suicide survivors. There's a number of uh, support groups that are present um, specifically for those individuals. Also um, treatment or therapy, you know, being able to talk about your loss and grieve your loss um, in a way that is comfortable for you. I realize not everybody is going to go to a therapist and sit in a therapist chair, but there are other support groups. Um, a lot of times I've noticed that they're present in um, churches and things of that nature. Um, community members, um, and family, you know, staying closely connected with those individuals can be um, a very uh, important part of the healing process. Um, and um, just doing what you can to ensure that your loved one is is not forgotten. I, I understand that in our society, the act of suicide itself can be um, very stigmatizing, not just to the individual, but also to their family members. Um, but just making sure that, you know, um, your loved one, at least in your world, is not forgotten and is continuously celebrating um, so that that individual is not just defined by that one um, final um, behavior. I'm happy you actually talked about stigma because it leads us right into the next question, which is um, that, you know, as black people, we we um, have a lot of culture with us because we came from a place of culture. However, this big, like, you know, stigma that is affiliated to suicide and, and, you know, being somewhat related to someone who committed suicide can be very hard. As black people, first of all, if you've done research on this, how do we handle this? And then secondly, how can we navigate these stigmas? Well, um, yeah, you're right. It, it's a, it's a really uh, important point. Um, probably one of the more challenging aspects of my work. Um, and actually I thought about this for just a moment. I have a quote that I'd like to read that really gets at how stigma can operate. 
uh, in the community. And so sometimes we think about stigma as somebody just being very open and saying, uh, you know, I don't get why people commit suicide. That People shouldn't do that. Okay. It may operate that way, but I want to, I want to share a brief quote with you um, so that it becomes more uh, apparent and I can illuminate the ways in which stigma can operate in the black community. So I conducted a research project a, um, a few years back and uh, I was interviewing this woman about suicide. Um, she had uh, asked her specifically, you know, has, does she know anybody that has attempted or committed suicide? And her response, and, and so then I asked, okay, so have, did you all, and she's, her answer was, yes, I do know someone. And I said, well, did you have any conversations around it, about it in the community or in your, in your circles? And this was her response. So I really want to make sure your, your listeners get this. She says, the only time I mentioned suicide to my friends or family members was when my neighbor committed suicide. My next door neighbor's son committed suicide a few months ago. And they, and when she said they, she was referencing other black community members. She says, they mentioned it only briefly. They said, by the way, did you know that mommy's son killed himself? He hung himself when his girlfriend left him. And I said, oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. And that was the end of her quote. And she says, you just move on and you rarely talk about it again. You make the comment, you express sympathy, and then you change the subject. That's it. Now that I think about it, it's kind of funny, she says. We had another neighbor on our block whose son was murdered a few years ago. The entire neighborhood rallied around her. We took her food, we attended the funeral, and we still check on her. In fact, we still take turns caring for her yard when we get time. And so I thought what she was bringing up was a really important dichotomy of how stigma can operate in the Black community. When you have an individual that, let's say, has died in a way that culturally, in terms of Black folks, culturally speaking, is more acceptable, there was this obvious um, support rallying around the victim's mother. But when the suicide victim died, there was silence. There was, I'm sorry to hear that, you move on and you rarely talk about it again. So on the one hand, you have people attending the funeral, bringing food, checking on her and cutting the grass when they get time. But then on the other hand of that, you have silence. And so I just want to convey to the reader that stigma can happen in a number of ways. And in fact, silence is, is to an extent, very stigmatizing, right? As human beings, we want to be validated. We want to know that what we're going through is okay. And so when we think about how, how stigma operates and how can people navigate it, we have to think about the ways in which we as individuals stigmatize others for their behavior. So I would say to your question, you navigate stigma by having conversations, by opening up the concept of suicide and just having a conversation about it and shining a light on some of the beliefs that may discourage another individual from talking about their thoughts and their feelings. This example that you gave just had me thinking about 
why? Like now I'm asking why was that the case? You know, mm-hmm. so I want to, I want to inquire, do you think it has anything? So in the case of the neighbor whose uh, child was killed, it's like, okay, a third put a, a third party committed the offense. So there's someone like we can, um, come together and then there's something or someone outside of the person that we can either, you know, uh, you know, look to for answers or, you know, rally up against. But in the case of suicide, this person took their own life. So how, like, you know, that, uh, how do I even say this? You know, the enemy of my friend is my, uh, is my friend type situation. But in this situation, that's when somebody, you know, murder the the neighbor's kid but when the kid killed himself or him or herself mm-hmm. how do you like what do you even tell the person who do you point fingers at we as humans we are creatures of habit and one of those things that we always have to try to unlearn is you know trying to give someone or something else blame for things that happen when right. something is very obvious, you know, in the case where someone kills someone, it's very obvious. But when someone kills themselves and you're trying to be supportive to the people affiliated to them, how do you even start to navigate that? Because it's like the person um, made a choice. Sure. So, like, it's, it just really has me thinking. And I'm sure other people are thinking the same thing too. Well, it was because of this. So, like... Mm-hmm. Do, do you see what I'm trying to ask? It's, it's not that simple. I know for that fact, it's not that simple. Yeah, you're right. It's not simple. Um, and I think, I think it's, it, it is a matter of um, people kind of looking at the individual's role in their death as opposed to um, the other individual who was just, you know, I, I don't know the, the, the details around the case of the indiv- the individual that was killed. But I, I do think that people um, tend to look at, you know, what, what role did they play in, in their own death? Now that gets kind of complicated because we're talking, number one, we're talking about a suicide survivor. So we're not even talking about the individual who, took their life. We're talking about their mother. So I do think we have to separate even just initially in this conversation, um, the role that perhaps the mother played, the mother didn't play a role necessarily. Right. I mean, the mother, in other words, the mother didn't, uh, assist the child in, in physically assist the child in taking, in taking their life. Um, so, so when we look at how we can support suicide survivors, we have to think about the fact that this was their family member. This was not them. And so there's that piece. But then when we're talking about, let's say it's someone who attempted suicide, but they weren't successful. Um, that, I mean, and so, you know, I, I think we have to think at a very, at a human level. Okay. Um, compassion is incredibly important and empathy is important. And and how do you become more empathetic and more compassionate to what people are going through? You think about the fact that, um, and this isn't in every case, but there it is common for depression. It is common for other sorts of mental illnesses or histories of trauma to play a role in an individual's uh, suicidal behaviors. Right? It, it, it doesn't always go together, but it, it, it a lot of times it does. And so, in that case, then now we are talking about an individual who is sick and may not be thinking very clearly. Right. So that's like saying, okay, if I if an individual has diabetes and 
um, you know, they, they eat cupcakes every day, five times a day, and then eventually they get their leg amputated and then eventually they die as a result of their action. Is that any different? Right. So if we're looking at a, a sickness and we're looking at the behaviors that can uh, arise as a result of those sicknesses, then um, then that can, in fact, I, I think, foster some form of compassion and empathy um, in ourselves as we view other others and what they're going through. So I don't know if that helps. It is a it's a personal journey that I think one has to go on. But when we're looking at um the ways that uh, we can support survivors as well as individuals that are um, that are considering suicide, we have to think about ways that we can be more compassionate and understanding, um, even if it's not something we've personally gone through. Okay, that's good. And you've answered half of the next question, which is, you know, about when someone has attempted it, but they survived it. Um, a friend of mine actually gave me that question to ask you because someone that Mm -hmm. she knows attempted it, they survived it. And now the dynamic, she said the family dynamic is weird. Yes. Yes. That's an excellent point. And I do think, um, you know, there's, there's always ways to intervene in terms of getting, getting the individual, uh, and not just the individual, but maybe the individual and their family and their loved ones or their support team can start, you know, some sort of counseling or whatnot to just get the conversation going. Because of course it's a, it's a very, um, complicated dynamic, um, not just for the individual, but for those that are around them. I completely agree with that. All right. So now let's go to the communal level. As Black people, I know that our sense of community is very big. We believe in community. That's how it's been before we got to this place. Um, So what can the community do to help reduce suicide rates among us as Black folks here, especially in America? That's a great question. Um, I, I would say, number one, we have to know what the myths are around suicide. We have to know what our cultural beliefs are around suicide. Sometimes those things, our beliefs will fuel the myths and sometimes they don't. But I want to point out a couple of different um, myths that in the event that you hear them, you automatically go on guard and put your, and put your, uh, your guard up to start to defend and deconstruct these myths that are prominent in our community. Number one is that black folks don't go to therapy. Okay. The minute you hear any of that, and we hear it in different ways, right? Like the way our parents and our grandparents may talk about it, maybe very different than what we talk, how we talk about it, but you're going to hear some aspect of that. And, and in fact, I'm pretty sure your re, your listeners are saying, yep, heard that one before um, because it is simply not true. And so that's one of the myths that we got to tackle head on when we see it. Black people don't go to therapy. Eh, that's my buzzer sound because that is a lie. If anything, black people, we need therapy more than anyone else because we have a lot of trauma, which by the way, we did not inflict on ourselves that we're dealing with. Hey, homie. Remember when Dr. Bird and I had our episode and we talked about historical trauma? Ding, 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 ding. That's what I'm talking about. 
So that's a myth. That is just one of the many myths that Dr. Kamisha Spakes covered. If you want to hear the rest of all the myths or the rest of most of the things that are myths in the black community, which we need to understand our myths, join me next week on the second part of this podcast. But one thing I'd like to say is when you care for someone, when you have a loved one, a friend, family, a spouse, a child, don't think by expressing your concern or your love or your care for them, you may be doing too much. You know, I grew up in a community where it was easy for people to express themselves. You know, it could be a little different in, you know, to some capacity. However, you don't think someone's saying, oh, I miss you. I love you. I care for you as weird. It's not weird at all. Because even though in our subconscious, we know the people around us, life has a way of beating us blue, black. It's like you're in a WWE ring. Life will beat you to a freaking pulp. And you forget like every bit of sanity that will remind you that you are loved just disappears. And it's when you've been, when you've been told, you know, over and over again by the people who love you, that you are loved and that you're not alone, that you'll be able to pull yourself together to say, okay, okay, breathe. This is temporary. This too shall pass. Look at you. You know, so, um, and this goes to all of us, myself included. If you love someone, if you care for someone, if you believe in someone, do well to verbalize, articulate it, you know, be, you know, have gestures to show that I'm not saying like smaller people, obviously no, but don't assume that people know how you feel about them because sometimes life can get very hard. It can get very tough and you need those little reminders to keep you going. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And remember, you need to sit tight because the second part of this is actually coming out next week. And I'd like to say thank you again to Dr. Kamisha Spates and thank you to Dr. Janice Bird who made this connection possible. You know, black women helping each other rise, black women helping each other grow, women in general helping each other grow, people helping each other grow. That's all community is about. And I'm so glad we could tap into this knowledge from our sister, our mother, our, 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 our brilliant Chinese star, Dr. Kamisha Spade. So thank you once again. Anywho, I am going to go get some food. Thank you again for joining me on an episode of Thoughts and Tea. Tea and Tea with your girl, Tea. <laughs> and I will tea you later. Thanks. Move some. Apply that. Pressure. 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 Pressure.